while teaching in Bible colleges um, overseas and here in Sydney. Uh, Bible colleges, which are by nature inclined more towards intellectual growth and academic um, development, it seemed always important to emphasise in those settings that uh, to, to future pastors and ministry workers that they must give attention also to their character while working hard in the library and, and doing their studies. The sad stories of churches and church leaders in evangelical churches around the world arise so often through character flaws and relational problems, more even perhaps than from doctrine. And so when we come to think about people uh, suited to church leadership, it's no surprise that we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 what we might call their private life uh, being discussed and seeing this emerge as vitally important. So what does God want his... Uh, how does God want his household to be led? With what kind of people? Well, firstly, Paul picks up where chapter 2 left off. Some will be given responsibility to teach and to be pastorally responsible for the flock. And so in verses 1 to 7.1 in your outline, we have the noble work of overseers caring for God's church. The three words used for this role, overseers, elders, pastors, have different shades of meaning through the New Testament but used often quite interchangeably to refer to the one charge or one care for Christ's flock. And so, for example, 10 years earlier in the Bible reading we read in Acts 20, 28, um, Paul's addressing there the Ephesian elders, and in 1 Timothy as well, the Ephesian setting, the Ephesian church is where Timothy's going, so the same group. So Paul, through his own inspiring example, calls the elders together and says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then the third word, be shepherds or or pastor, the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. This would be the new and lasting way God's churches would be led under Christ's ultimate headship. Through people called overseers, elders, pastors. Now these words aren't... um, precisely defined or pinned down, I take it deliberately, uh, God's word's very deliberate. Um, And God was establishing an international church made up of all nations throughout the centuries and not wanting to constrain us with laws, but rather gives us principles that can be appropriated according to context. So a church of 15 people in Sudan looks to the same Bible as the church in Korea, in a church of 10,000 people. And so whatever system God provides needs to be followable. There is some wisdom, some wriggle room in the New Testament. And perhaps if you get frustrated by some of the grey areas, that's often a reason why. There's a kindness to it. There's a prescience of the Bible that makes it wonderfully timeless for the global church in a way that other religious books didn't think to provide at the time. I was reading recently of how a Muslim in Scotland would really struggle with Ramadan because the the day would go for so long. And he said it didn't seem to be designed for places so far away from the equator. Pilgrimages and strict dress codes, Jehovah's Witnesses having door-knocking quotas that test the patience in little country towns of households where there aren't so many doors to knock on, and so they get visited very often. But we notice here the brilliance of God's word. It's prescriptive enough, but there's a liberating freedom with application. It's daunting enough without being crushing. 
and it's seasoned with inspiration. So that the potential servants of God's church seek the task neither naively nor for personal gain. But nor do they avoid the role. Paul's guidance here is terse, it's abbreviated, it's not giving the impression of being comprehensive, yet it is informative and sufficient. Look at verse 1 with me. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. He's not saying it's always noble to aspire to be an overseer, a pastor, a teaching elder or an elder, since many could aspire to those roles with really bad motives. That's not noble in itself. What is noble is the task itself, the role, or the word is quite literally a a work. As Calvin says, it's it's no light matter to represent God's Son in such a great task of erecting and extending God's kingdom in caring for the salvation of souls whom the Lord himself has deigned to purchase with his own blood and in ruling the church, which is God's inheritance. That's a big task that church leaders are asked to fulfill, and one I certainly don't feel worthy of fulfilling. And yet the nobility of the work means it's okay for the well-motivated to aspire to it, the word Paul uses in verse 1. And churches are to produce and reproduce disciples, pointing a good number of them into this work of shepherding ministry. So not let that happen by accident, or not letting young people who may be really good for ministry not be told that. Here in verse 2, Paul gives seven desirable qualities, and then he'll give four disqualifiers. So first, notice the qualities he thinks important to point out. Now, the overseer, verse 2, is to be above reproach. That is, there's no charges that should stick against him. A husband of one wife, or the NIV here says, faithful to his wife. Temperate, self-controlled, to have a command over oneself that enables one to lead others well. And also leads to the next trait of being respectable, able to be respected, having a life that you might call admirable hospitable. There's an openness, a receptivity to church and to strangers. Able to teach because Christianity is built on a body of knowledge. What about the four disqualifiers, the four knots of verse 3? Knots given to drunkenness. If I notice that police and pilots aren't allowed to be drinking or pilots aren't allowed to have alcohol in their system, that elders and all disciples are ever on duty before God and should never be getting drunk. Um, In case helpful to know, my own policy is if I have a drink, I'll have a drink. And that's uh, not coming from God. It's just an artificial limit that helps me to prevent regret. Not violent, but gentle. You can, I think, get away with being a bossy school principal or employer or parent, but the harm seems much worse when it's done by a pastor or elder. Jesus was at times very firm, but he was gentle, never crushing a bruised reed. Many a pastor, elder, bishop has been manipulative, demeaning, violent, but these ways weren't learned from Jesus. Next, Paul writes, not quarrelsome. So not being one for petty controversies, silly arguments, or letting pride get ourselves into insignificant battles that don't matter. 
not a lover of money. I think it's very easy to love money, or at least to love what money can do and get you. But elders need to be vigilant about this idol as well and keep its influence always at bay. Our nation is obsessed with gambling, on sporting apps and the stock market, but these things will dampen spiritual zeal. This obsession can't be an under-shepherd's. We can't be zealous for many things at once. Enough is enough. More isn't better. And Paul will come back to this later in the letter as he speaks to all of us, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Seen seen abstractly, this list can be seen as an odd collection. Um, But for anyone, I take it with lots of church experience, each of these ten traits seem incredibly helpful. And we might think, why wasn't this heated more, or why wasn't this candidate screened according to this criteria a little more on the way into ministry? Supported more towards those traits, perhaps. They're also a good guide for all of us, aren't they? Next, from verse 4, a pastor elder's family life is not irrelevant to their suitability, as might be the case for many professions. Uh, Verse 4, we read, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Um, I mentioned, I'm reading, have been reading 1 Samuel. Um, Eli's problem, Eli the prophet's great problem was that he didn't keep his sons under control. And God had to step in when Eli didn't. And so an overseer's family shouldn't be falling apart through neglect, incompetence or harshness. And that's not to say that we don't make mistakes or that marriage and raising kids is always smooth sailing. Sometimes elders or pastors need to take some leave or they need to take a break. They need to step back from ministry to care for their own wife or family who may have been being neglected. And if their marriages and families fall apart, the ministry goes with it. And that's the case we see from time to time. Verse 5 shows the logic. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may have become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders. I wonder if outsiders, those who aren't Christians, aren't in the church, sometimes see things more clearly than the church. There may be less grace in the way they just say it. Perhaps there's um, just more of a tendency to call things as they are. And so it might be a good thing to call an employer of a ministry candidate and ask, what kind of worker was this person? Sin tries to ruin everything. Grace is needed everywhere, and pastors need lots of grace too, and elders Our families aren't always clean and shiny. Uh, We have our stumbles, we have our hasty words, misunderstandings, inconsiderate decisions, messy seasons, stressful circumstances, peculiarities of personalities and so on. And so we too, too need mutual forgiveness when we are. Having said that, I think there's great value and merit in what Paul says here, and it's pretty transparent, the value of it. Do pray for the elders and the pastoral leaders of the church. Their tasks can be thankless, discouraging, disheartening. I wonder too if in our culture where middle-aged men in leadership roles can be unfairly resented just for existing. 
they shouldn't need to become apologetic or sheepish for trying to serve Christ as best they can and don't need this extra layer. Um, Kaz Peng in our church asked if, we might, if she might interview some of the elders in coming weeks. Who are these elders? What are they like? Can we get to know them a bit more? A great initiative. And so we hope to release those in the coming weeks. Just a little snippet, particularly for the other congregations who don't see the elders so much. Um, our denomination, by the way, and, and many denominations, have a great shortage of good elders and ministers. Country New South Wales needs pastors. Australia needs pastors. New Zealand needs pastors. The world needs pastors and godly elders. They're not born, but they're raised in gospel churches. They're produced in gospel communities where gospel ministry is promoted, where it's esteemed, when ministry is seen as an excellent way to consider giving your life. Besides other ways. Now, besides those responsible for shepherding the sheep, it seems the early church had a simple twofold leadership structure under Christ. In Philippians 1.1, for example, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus, that's everybody, with the overseers and the deacons. So two general categories of leader in the church that seem to go through the New Testament with the different words associated. So Paul moves from the first group to the second in verses 8 to 13, the blessed service of deacons. The overseers we saw in verse 2 are called to live lives worthy of respect, and so too the deacons in verse 8. Many of the traits are similar, so I'll spend a bit less time describing them, picking up from verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They aren't called upon to teach necessarily, but being Christ's in mind and conscience is still really important, verse 9. It's, fruit, it's important for any fruitful service. And verse 10, they must first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. A little while ago, I had two sons with their learner's permits, which was trying, because they, they both have to get 120 hours each. Um, now I'm down to one. But it struck me as a really good way to learn to drive and ways that we can learn from in the church. And along these lines, I think Paul is pointing that we introduce and we train and we observe and we test and we hasten slowly with the, the amount people do. Those desperate to dive into influential ministry tend to nose dive. In verse 11 we read, in the same way the women, or perhaps the wives, that word can be translated both ways, are to be worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. So what are the deacons, you might be wondering at this point? Uh, we don't have a formal deacon title in our church, and so this might be a bit vague. But where the overseer role is connected to teaching and exercising authority in churches, the deacons, a word which means servants um, most directly, sometimes translated ministers, are those who serve in mercy areas or practical or administrative areas. Never in competition with the overseers, but in support and partnership with the overseers. So in Acts 6, we have 
an example of practical ministries, distributing food, which was very important to the life of the church at the time and complemented the word and ministry, ministry of the apostles. Now, this Acts 6 isn't meant to be a template applied strictly to churches today, as I think it has been overly done in the past, but it is one of many examples of service in the New Testament. And I think its great value is showing why the division of labour is really important. Another name that emerges when thinking about faithful servants serving or deaconing is Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Listen to the way Paul speaks of her. I mentioned Romans 16 last week. It's a really warm chapter if you've got a quiet afternoon this afternoon. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, deacon, deaconess of the church in Kenkray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, is some debate goes is over, is she technically a deacon? Were women deacons or is the wife description um, suggesting the deacons were men? I don't think the New Testament makes it very clear. Again, for good reason of lack of clarity, not by mistake. Uh, principles, there's freedom to apply them, there's flexibility and grace, and we see gospel ministry supported and all Christians honoured. What is clear from Phoebe's example is that she's a faithful servant of many Christians, of Paul himself and of the Lord himself. I think it uh, takes a strong argument to suggest deacons were only men Um, in light of verses like this. Paul commends her and urges the church welcome, support and honour her. Um, In the Presbyterian Church, the Committee of Management used to be called the Deacon's Court or um, considered perhaps a one-for-one match with what's going on in the New Testament, or at least it was a handy way of grasping it. But other, it's, it's not a good one-for-one match. Other types of people in our church life that reflect deacon ministry would be those heavily invested in pastoral care, those who might coordinate meals for people, those who might coordinate catering. We have congregational leadership teams that look after each congregation and seek to see them pastorally going okay and strengthened. We have those who significantly help with administration in our church. The church, I think, runs okay. But it certainly not wouldn't run okay if it was just up to me and the elders. Uh, personally, word, prayer, preaching, discipling, visiting, guiding, planning, they're about, the only, they're about all the verbs I can keep up with in one week. And the pastoral team as well. I can't run a church not even with the help of great elders. It takes a diversely gifted group of competent women and men to run, as we do. And I'm deeply thankful for everyone in their acts of service. We really have great people serving around our church. But while I'm grateful, it's also good to know that God himself is very aware of your service if you're in those roles. Verse 13. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance, literally boldness, in the faith in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised that King Jesus looks after his servants, should we? A service that can be just as testing, draining as any pastor's role, but can be less noticed. 
the Lord notices. As in 2 Peter, so here, an excellent standing in the faith results. Paul mentions here great boldness in the faith. Because faithful servants tend to know whose they are. And faithful servants tend to be blessed as those who see the Lord from new angles as his co-workers. And they tend to grow bolder in their convictions through their service as the years go by. Service is one great way that your faith can be strengthened. Much more than talking about serving. And showing up at things is just a great way to start serving the community and to see needs around you. We go through stages of life. Some of you may have limited ability to serve just at this period, and that's great. Prayer is another wonderful way to serve. But it seems whenever Paul gets into the nitty-gritty, he then needs to go take us back to Christ, and that's what he does in point three. It reminds us that the church is a bastion of truth, a household with eyes for Jesus, verses 14 to 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you with these instructions. And aren't we glad that he, had to, he wrote what would become God's word so that we can read it and he didn't just verbalize it or go with Timothy on this occasion? So that, verse 15, if I am delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. First, notice here Paul's high regard for churches in places like Ephesus and, by extension, Sydney. It's no wonder that how we conduct ourselves matters so much. Where is God in the world? He's among his people, the church. We are, with the churches nearby in our suburbs, where God resides in this part of Sydney. Find God here, we could put on a sign outside. Find God among us. Walk through our doors and you may find yourselves before long walking through the doors of heaven as this community points you to him. It's no wonder that what people find when they walk through the doors matters, doesn't it? We represent God. Secondly, verse 15 shows us that the church is like a pillar. If you think of the great Ephesian temples, wonders of the world, where the pillars would hold things up high, the church likewise promotes and holds up the truth. Secondly, he says it's a foundation or a bastion, stabilizes the building underneath or besides, defending the truth. So the church, I take it, he's saying, promotes, lifts it up, presents, but also defends the truth. That might surprise you. Um, You'd think Paul would say, as he does elsewhere, that the truth is the foundation of the church, not that the church is the foundation of the the, the truth other way around but he's saying the reverse that no church if we have no church we have no defense and no proclamation of the truth in other words god's truth relies upon the church to guard it and to promote it it's a huge honor isn't it a huge responsibility for the humble people in this room that that's our role But in God's plan, and as we've seen throughout history and in many dark pockets of the world still today, where there is no healthy church and no sound leadership, there is no truth. And there is darkness. 
Yes, to know God and to live a truly godly life, God points to his clearest self-revelation in the historic yet cosmic Lord Jesus in verse 16. Beyond all question, undoubtedly, undeniably, demonstrably, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Mystery, not that it's just mysterious and we can't work it out. Mystery that it was unknown and now it's become known. And godliness springs from the truths he's about to say. He appeared in the flesh. That is, he was born a real human, yet he made a world in order to forever embrace it. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit of God would confirm the Nazarene's legitimacy and raised Israel's condemned Messiah, vindicated by the Spirit. The Lord Jesus was seen by angels. Angels exalted him at his birth. They were restrained at his execution. They were present at his ascension. And they worship him as the risen Lord in the book of Revelation. He was preached among the nations. We saw in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uh, through our church today, Arnhem Land, Fiji, Presbyterian Age Care, Scots College, PLC, local schools, workplaces, dinner tables, children's bedrooms. He's preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. Samaritan villages, Ethiopian eunuchs, a great multitude from every nation will call him Lord. And he was taken up in glory. We shall follow him. Those he justified, he also glorified. What great truths. This essence of the great gospel that makes our lives make sense, that makes existence make sense and tells us that we're one step away from glory as God's household. True godliness, verse 16, is inspired by those who meditate on this awesome historic cosmic drama. Here is the food for our souls. Here is the soil for our growth, this great gospel. I remember driving to a little village 70 kilometers away from a small town. I lived in a small town. This town was smaller. It had a school with six kids in it. And um, six or seven people in the church. On a good Sunday, we'd have about ten. It was three o'clock in the afternoon, the tired part of a Sunday. The football started at four o'clock, and I was always aware I'd miss it. And what good's it going to do anyway, six or seven farmers? Such a little congregation in such a little place. I remember the advice I heard from an older minister before I went into ministry. No little people, no little places. No little people, no little places. God is at work in the smallest of things. And so I'd give my all as I preached to that tiny little gathering, as I would anywhere else. After all, it's not my branch, it's not my club, it's not my decision to say who is important in God's eyes. But here before me in this group of six or seven, and today this gathering again, we have God's household, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a foundation of the truth. Little things, ordinary elders, ordinary servants, but we're all part of God's extraordinary picture. God's provision and flexibility for the church is wonderful. 
loose enough to fit in this real world, yet having enough character guidelines that should see us well cared for. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for those who've led us in the past, led us in the ways of Christ, imperfectly but faithfully. We thank you for those who continue to lead us uh, in the matters of um, spiritual oversight and care, in the matters of practical needs and physical provision, in the needs of organisation and properties and um, considering the various needs of our community. We thank you for each one and we pray that we would be a joy to serve uh, by those people. And we pray, Father, that this church may be an equipping church, a training church. Lord, training for church ministry, but also training for workplaces and for um, roles as parents, for all the places that you put us. Uh, Prepare us for health, prepare us for sickness, and prepare us to serve one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.